Hi, and thanks so much for joining us again. Great to have you along to hear a little bit more about some of our ruminant nutrition topics within the Rumin Room podcasts. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand-based veterinarian and nutritionist who works for PGG Rights and Seeds, based here at Kimahia Research Centre in Lincoln in Canterbury. Look, perhaps you're new to our podcasts, or maybe you're a frequent flyer and have listened in before, but either way, look, the backstory about these podcasts is that these range of different episodes are actually an offshoot from the Facebook group, The Rumen Room. If you're not already a member of that private group, head over, join in the group. Uh, if ruminant nutrition and animal health is your thing, we've got a real community going there. Lots of interesting uh, discussions and conversations and posts. Hopefully you'll find something there of interest. Quite a few of these podcasts so far have had just me talking away to myself about a range of topics and we're definitely going to be bringing in some guest speakers to save you having to listen to me talking all the time. So we've already done this once with our first guest, Dr Laura Patty joined us a couple of episodes ago to share her expertise on the transition feeding of dairy cows through calving. And for those of you who have came back uh, to us with very positive feedback about bringing guests in, thanks very much, and we'll be looking to do more of that. So to kick off our guest number two, today we've been joined by a fantastic colleague of mine, agronomist and farm systems guru, Paul Greenbank. Now, Paul's going to be stepping us through a whole lot of different things to do with summer forage crops with a specific emphasis on lamb finishing. So um, that said, a lot of what Paul's going to cover is going to be relevant to all of our ruminant species, despite talking a fair bit about lambs. Hey, Paul, so thanks so much for joining us today to tell us all about summer forage crops. Could we maybe kick this podcast off with you telling us about yourself, uh, like where you're based, what you've done with your career so far, and just what has given you such a good skill set in this area of agronomy and the whole farm systems space? Yeah, good morning. Oh, well, hi, hi, Charlotte. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's a, it's a bit of an honour, actually, to be alongside you on your um, successful podcast and um, also the subsidiary to your room and room, which is cool. I'm Paul Greenbank. I um, work for a, a forage brand called PGG Rights and Seeds, and I'm based on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand and live in a small town uh, of Napier. And um, within the egg industry in New Zealand, I have 13 years at uh, working alongside dairy, sheep and beef farmers and uh, looking at their farm systems. And um, I'm always looking to improve efficiencies on dairy farms, as well as improving lamb live weight and cattle live weight gains with specific focuses on forages, whether that be pasture or specific forages like uh, some of summer cropping, which we'll be discussing today, and also not limited to winter forages as well. And that, and that can be herbs, clovers, lucerns, um, brassicas. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where my sort of focus is on farm. Oh, thanks for that, Paul. That's a pretty awesome set of skills you've got there. You're just who we need to help us out with some of these discussions around uh, summer forage uh, crops and also as it relates to nutrition. It's brilliant having you part of our PGG Rights and Seeds team as one of our experts to uh, have on tap for all things to do with crops and grasses. I certainly enjoy working with you. And importantly, we really appreciate you taking time out to join us today. So to get us started, tell us, when you're working with farmers and also alongside your retailer reps who you spend a lot of time with, tell us why in the world... Would we plant summer crops? Why are they such an important part of the various farm systems uh, for all manner of our various ruminant species out there on New Zealand farms? Sure. So farmers grow summer brassicas for a variety of reasons. These reasons could be to fill summer feed deficits from either drought or low summer growth periods within the farm system. Some farmers have may 
have experienced a rather wet winter. And so they have either sacrificed paddocks or they may have actually scuffed up a few paddocks where there may be required renovation for those pastures and some are brassicas or summer forages are, um, are used to re- remediate that. Ultimately, on farm, we want to in- increase our forage production or pasture production because it's the cheapest form of feed on farm um, is homegrown feed. So regrassing older pastures is one way of to improve from farm productivity. Other options or other reasons could be to improve land live weight gains or shorten the live weight gain period to capture the prime land price with meat companies, meat buying purchasing companies. And I like to, with all my discussions on farm, I like to talk about how to increase the overall farm forage energy levels. And that can be through renovating new pastures, but also including um, forages, which is what we're talking about today. And that's really important. And I just think that um, that's one thing we can strive to, to do uh, in particular areas in the farm, depending on the layout, land availability, aspect topography and environment all these sort of factors need to be considered when looking at um, summer cropping for example for those of you listening some of you might not have had a lot to do with summer forage crops and goodness knows there's a whole heap of different types and species and cultivars of summer forage crops how on earth do you decide which crop type you're going to run with for a particular farm or even within a particular uh, block on a farm, where on earth do you start? Yeah, it is it is quite a confronting topic on discussion on farm. And there are a number of options that are available for summer cropping. And it can get quite confusing when exploring these uh, because there's so many, there's a variety of options to suit, to suit many different farm situations. And some farm forages are considered early feeds so grazing the crop after 45 days from planting, uh, for example, or later feeds can be fed from 70, 80 days onwards, depending on what the forage type is. As mentioned, there are herbs such as clovers and potentially plantains or legumes, or we can combine these together um, with other red and white clover with trickery, for example. Lucerne is another good option in drier environments where um, summer, summer deficits of pasture um, occur. You may really just be wanting to find some other option out there but you really need to be decisive in what you're wanting out of a forage as they all fit the farm system differently and they each have a different need and we also need to understand the farming environment that the farmer is uh, farming within and you need to be uh, and that is are you summer safe or would you traditionally expect an extended dry period once you know all that and you know what you're trying to achieve is it cattle? Is it lambs? Is it something else? Um, you can narrow your options down, uh, looking at your feed availability, looking at your um, feed supply um, versus demand, and then we can explore the number of options available. And within the brassica space, um, there's things like leafy turnip, a forage forage rape, they call it, a summer bulb turnip. There's another new species on the, on the market within New Zealand and Australia called Peloton raffno. Talk a bit, about that, bit about that later. Or kale is even an option for late summer or early autumn feeds. There are a number of there are some varieties which have excellent weed control, and these are called the clean crop brassica system. And the clean crop brassica system have a variety of different brassicas in there as well. Within that group, cover off twenty three weeds within the herbicide used in combination with that brassica system. Mm-hmm. So often having more than one forage is an advantage, as this spreads the risk on farm, and can assist in live weight gain in all very different different ways. Um, but at the end of the day, they're all very high quality feeds, which is great, which means we can get efficient livestock production on farm and um, also planting these things can actually help our market risk as well um, when, when considering these feeds. So yeah, there's a lot in there and a lot to unpack, but certainly um, there's, there's options available. We just need to know your farm system, the environment you, you're growing, your foraging, and then also... Um, uh, what what are you trying to achieve on farm? Oh, hey, thanks, Paul. It, it certainly sounds like summer crops are going to deliver us a whole heap of better outcomes for our sheep, cattle, deer, 
than certainly trying to get our animals performing well on maybe a 30-year-old run-out wild-type endophyte ryegrass-dominant pasture, hey, dear. But look, there's so many moving parts around summer forage cropping. I guess that planning for summer crops isn't something um, that we're going to leave to the last minute, eh? We're going to get sort of stuck into that quite early? Yeah, so planning should actually be started earlier on in the season back in probably autumn, or I like to start my planning in autumn. And um, by using, we call it the programmed approach, which is where we look at pastures, run out pastures, either from a summer dry or just pastures that need to be renovated for whatever reason. We might be looking at things like sort of old pastures which have wild type endophyte in them. And wild type endophyte is quite a, um, a limiting factor when it comes to live weight gain on hill country. So the, the programmed approach is quite a, a robust system or a plan. So starting in, in the autumn, we're using, we've got some good tools. And um, one of those tools is glyphosate. And glyphosate mm-hmm. is a really, really handy tool on farm. And, mm-hmm. um, and we can either direct drill where we have uh, fallow periods between um, spraying out and planting, which is great for mm. uh, eliminating uh, things like insect pests and um, also uh, weed management is a factor to consider as well. Or we can just use cultivation, but glyphosate's a great tool to remove all foliage within the paddock and then we can start from a clean slate and get into our cropping. So if we spray out in autumn, we should be looking at either we don't actually have to spray out in autumn, but we can either spray out and start with the grass um, mm-hmm. and carry that a winter active grass so we can get good winter production from that pasture. Or if it's a semi-runout pasture, we can under-sow with, a, with an active winter active pasture. It could be an annual, um, mm-hmm. preferably, um, or you can look at an Italian if you really want to. We carry right. those through and we graze them throughout the, the, the winter period. And when it comes mm-hmm. to time to be the, when it comes to the correct time of planting, which is somewhere between um, early to late October, then uh, we can spray out again, which gives us another bite at the pie to remove all those weed problems again and these pest pressures that come through. Um, and then we decide on our forage, and then we carry that through into the following um, autumn and then look into a renovation of our pasture program, depending on what the farm system, that's just one example of what you do. So the other thing that we need to consider around planting our crops is um, what method we'll be using to plant our crops, and that is either cultivation or direct drilling typically. Some crops may be applied via helicopter, but certainly mm. um, certainly direct drilling and, um, and cultivation is a, a, key aspect, a key methods of drilling crop. So I just wanted to maybe also just include that when we're cultivating, we want to make sure that we've got our uh, soil cultivated in a way where we can get the best soil-to-seed soil contact. When we get the good soil-to-seed contact, we can get um, a, a fairly even and fast emergence as well uh, so that's really important what we don't want to as mentioned before we don't want to have a rush job and have big clods in the soil that's going to limit mm. our emergence I think the analogy is that the soil needs to be cultivated in a way that it's going to cover the seed appropriately to have um, a correct emergence along with that is also rolling so often I see in, in paddocks throughout the spring um, paddocks aren't necessarily rolled correctly and we can see lines of emerging, of emerging crop where the tractor tyres are in the paddock and not oh, where right. it hasn't been rolled. So that's mm. a real problem with emergence. Um, and particularly if we have a dry spring that can uh, inhibit our emergence again and just let weeds take over. So that's really important. And uh, if you're planting lucerne, for example, it's always best to roll it twice if not three times, because we want to make sure that um, we've got uh, really, really good soil consolidation and seed to soil contact to get that loosen up. I mean, then, I mean that applies to, to many, many different crops. In the direct drilling space, it's really important to make sure that we're going at a sensible speed with our direct drills, because if you're cruising down the paddock and you're doing 15 k's an hour or something crazy, then the seed box and, and the drill and things, the seed can actually jump out of the soil as the disc or the boot travels through the soil when the seed jumps out of the out of the the, the row drill mm. the row of the drill or where the boot's gone through then yeah. it's going to lay on top if we get a really wet spring we can sometimes get away with it but if we have a dry spring the emergence and plant numbers are going to be poor 
So that ultimately, I'd suggest that drilling at a speed between six and eight kilometers per hour is applicable. But I know yeah. there's time pressures out there. But to get the best result, we need to go a little bit slower um, with our with our drilling speed. Some seed, for example, Peloton is a slightly larger seed. And if we go through the soil too quickly with a disc drill, for example, the, the disc can actually drag the seed up onto the surface and lay it on top. Mm. If we go a little bit slower, then we can actually get the seed in the soil where it's meant to be. Seeds grow in the soil, right? So if we can get it in the soil, we can get a good emergence, and then we can have a, a successful crop for our, our summer brassicas. And also with our drilling, direct drilling, some often some drills often have rollers behind them, which is really good too. Mm. If you've direct drilled your paddock and you don't have a roller behind it, then I would encourage you to actually roll it after if you don't have decent press wheels on that drill to be able to improve your seed-to-soil contact as well. Another important thing mm. to consider. And with direct drilling, please use slug bait. Slug bait is another key factor when it comes to keeping our populations at, a, at the higher end. If we don't use slug bait, we can see a lot of decimation in our paddocks. And a little right. tip for you, if you have circles in the paddock or abnormal shapes within the paddock, that usually suggests it's an insect. But mm-hmm. if we can see lines within the paddock, that's usually a mechanical issue. So watch out for those yeah. two, and you can see those in the paddock to pick up on what's going on and um, help us determine what the problem is. So, Paul, our grazing animals, our ruminants, uh, unashamedly, I'm very much more on the animal nutrition and health side of things, uh, as I know a lot of our rumen room listeners are as well. And our animals certainly love to eat our summer forage crops, uh, certainly compared to that 30-year-old run-out wild endophyte kind of ryegrass pasture. So if our four-legged friends enjoy eating these crops, I guess we got a lot of the six-legged creepy crawly um, insects and slugs and the like. I guess they're liking our forage crops too. So what do you recommend when you're trying to prevent damage to our summer forage crops, you know, the likes of brassicas, when they're getting chewed on by these unwanted grazing critters? Yeah, I guess there's a few things here, and and um, I think it's really important just to go back to the planning and understand that when we have breaks when before planting, so spraying out the planting, those breaks are really beneficial to reduce the risk of pests that come in and can eat our um, can destroy our brassica crops. So that's the first mm. thing. So making sure that we have that space between um, spraying out and planting is really important. Again, don't rush it. If you're going to go and spray out and then five days later cultivate and then plant your crop, that's going to be a too short a time frame. So we want to be able to desiccate those plants um, and then also remove the food for those insects. Um, Therefore, effectively, it sounds horrible, but they're going to starve and then die off. And then we can plant our brassica crop and get it on the ground, then limiting Mm. the creepy crawlies that can come through and, and, and destroy the crop. When we plant our crop, we should actually be considering our seed treatment as well. So seed treatment's a very important part of um, cropping uh, and summer forages. So um, within the PG Rights and Seeds brand, we use a product called Ultra Strike. So mm-hmm. Ultra Strike contains a fungicide and an insecticide, and it's also got a couple of um, minerals in there, micronutrients in there for the plant as well during establishment. That's really important to consider as well. If you're going to plant bare seed, you're not going to have that protection and you have to rely on um, pretty horrible chemicals such as um, organophosphates, which which are basically Mm. like a nuclear bomb going off in the crop. They just destroy everything. So Mm. we're destroying um, not only the bad pests, but we're destroying our good pests as well. We want to keep those there. So there is a strategy in there called the IPM, Integrated Pest Management Strategy, Mm -hmm. which is a plan to use um, certain different insecticides to limit our creepy crawlies destroying our crop but firstly we need to just consider that break first in our planning then we need to consider our seed treatment so ultra strike seed treatment is is key and once the plant's growing then we need to start monitoring our our crop probably between two to six weeks um Mm -hmm. and the danger period is probably two to four weeks in all honesty that's the time when we can get springtails greasy cutworm stem weevil and an array of other bugs. Aphids can come in at a later date um, down the road, 
but mm. um, for establishment purposes, then we can look at those um, look at those insects and, and control them. Once we start seeing a, a, a decent population, then we can get in there with our appropriate chemistry and um, and eliminate those 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 bugs. Basically, I guess also later on down the track, we can get aphids, as mentioned, and that's sort of um, oh, gee, I don't know, probably getting into the summer and autumn as well. And uh, it can happen any time, depending on environmental conditions. So believe it or not, the blue-green aphid, which is the most common aphid in New Zealand, that attack brassicas, they're born pregnant, which is a pretty strange fact. But <laughs> that, basically, so, that basically suggests that they're going to multiply at a staggering rate and um, right. become even more of a problem. We can choose a forage which doesn't get affected by aphids or a forage mm-hmm. which is limited to its aphid tolerance. So older varieties of forage rape, they tend to attract aphids. They have a, they often have a high burden of aphid on them. But the new modern rapes, such as Titan rape, um, are very aphid tolerant, but even more tolerant to that. In fact, 30% higher tolerance to aphid is, again, the Peloton brassica. So there's no oh, benefit right for that product. Yes, yes. So, um, so that's really important too. So if you're worried about aphids or, or an aphid-prone area, then some of those brassica choices Maybe better than than, um, than others, so um, that, that's also also a key point as well. But yeah. I think it's just monitoring. Monitoring is mm-hmm. so key. So you'll be monitoring mm-hmm. for pests early on, but then also be monitoring for weeds early on too. And you can mm-hmm. often do a combination spray where you put an insecticide and a herbicide on to help eliminate weeds and pests to give the crop the best opportunity to give the greatest yield. Also, it's about quality of yield too. So you don't want to have the plant, the paddock riddled with weeds. You just want to have high quality brassica in this case going down the throat. You don't want to have forage limiting yields where uh, weeds where you're going to limit your yield and also um, reduce the overall energy levels of the crop too. So that's really important. Yeah. I guess in your agronomy role, Paul, look, you're with the crop the whole way through, but particularly at the front end of things, getting the crop on the ground. Um, right through to that grazing. As the Pejiji Rights and Seeds in-house vet, I, I guess I tend to spend more time in crop sort of either just before or perhaps sometimes when the animals are actually already in the crop and grazing it. And I know when we're standing in a, say, a uh, brassica crop, might be a forage rape crop, middle of the summer, we're quite often surrounded by like masses of white butterflies, eh, as well as other things like... Oh, diamondback moths and everything that are all munching huge holes in the leaves of our brassica crops. Connor, as the animal person and, and not the agronomist in our team, I'm always curious to know about what point do you make a decision to do anything about the damage to the leaves from, from white butterfly and diamondback moth that sort of, to me, looks like the old shotgun's been shot at the plant in these big holes and what do we do about them? Yeah, so butterflies and moths can be a bit of a, a hindrance on crop. Um, as you mentioned, the white butterfly, quite a common uh, pest in New Zealand um, when it comes to forage brassicas and the, um, the market gardens out there that grow your broccoli and your cauliflowers will battle away with these ones as well. The, the white butterfly, um, yeah, there's no hard and fast rule around population triggers to be able to um, spray. But, I mean, this sounds really bad, but when you're experienced, you sort of get a, you get a gut feel when you, when you walk into the paddock. But mm. if you're seeing fresh caterpillar shit on the leaves, and there's a lot of them, they're often under the leaves or hiding in the crevices mm. of the plant. The way to identify a white butterfly caterpillar is that it's quite a quite a large caterpillar, and when you sort of pat it or stroke it, it's a bit like a, um, a lazy dog. It sits there and loves to have a pet. It doesn't move. <laughs> and then when you compare that to a diamondback, and when you touch that, it shrivels up and wriggles away and, and is lost and it wriggles away very, very quickly. So oh, that's right. the difference so that's between the two, two different um, insects there. But in terms yeah. of population, diamondback moth really strive and really um, populate very well in hot, dry weather. And it's and again, it comes down to monitoring, just keeping an eye on numbers. Um, mm. But we can go through with insecticides to, to reduce the risk on crop. But mm. again, monitoring is so critical because if we don't monitor then can actually within four or five days, you know, a crop can be decimated by quite a lot and you can lose quite a reasonable amount of yield as well. So um, Mm -hmm. I guess the other thing about insects is um, 
even at establishment and or later on in the piece, if we have insects attacking our crops, we can, um, that is one way that brassica disease can get into our crops. So that's another, another aspect of, of trying to mitigate or, or manage our insect pests because they're really, they can be not only taking yield away, but they can mm. actually open up the plant to disease as well, which is not what we want. Mm. So we want to have a healthy crop carried through <laughs> without any disease and maintain quality forage yields for our designated time of year when we need it. Yeah, right. So look again, experienced listeners are going to be all over this practical stuff around, you know, summer forage crops and the brassica crops particularly. But I know that many of you listening may be new to the industry. Maybe you've been more on the animal side of the business and not so much to do with forage crops. I guess for for the likes of myself and, and less experienced people about cropping, it's really worth having that good relationship with local retailers and I, I guess other people such as Paul and, and the PG Rights and Seeds team to answer all your questions. Definitely right and um, there are a bunch of specialists in the herbicide and insecticide world out there mm-hmm. uh, and they're very um, skilled at, at honing down and, and, and recommending the appropriate products for insects and insect management as well. So again through retailers you can get some good support in that space which is really positive. Yes. Yeah, for sure. A real team-based approach is kind of cool, really, because, you know, across the wider farm business, you know, the bigger bigger farm businesses particularly, there'll be a whole team of experts that have got all sorts of different types of backgrounds and skill sets and will have different uh, input to different parts of the business. And, yeah, why, why wouldn't we do the same with our crops? You know, you've got your agronomy specialists, you've got, you'll have someone who's really good on the herbicide, someone who's really good on... Are there any serial insecticides is required? So yeah, go for it, team team players. Hey, um, but anyway, we've gone off on a bit of a tangent from some of the specifics of getting crops into the ground, and as well as uh, managing some of the critters that uh, eat the crops. So look back on track, I guess, Paul. A couple of questions, and firstly, what if we've right? We've done our crop planning. What do we do next? That'd be question number one. And then secondly, oh, the crop crop input costs have just gone crazy, hey, um, through the roof in, in recent months, you know, certainly since the beginning of a year. What are your recommendations around managing these crop costs? You know, can we, are there, are there corners that we can cut? Where can we watch costs? Uh, can we do anything to try and get the costs down? The planning is very important. Um, the other thing that's that's key about it is that do not cut corners. If you cut corners, then you'll have a bigger problem on your hands. If you do everything properly and do everything within your control, then you can actually get a, a reasonable result. But if, as soon as you start cutting corners or rush things, for example, the contractor might come in and rush, or you might be in a, under a bit of time pressure and the cultivation job isn't done correctly, and we have big clods, our seed-to-soil contact is limited, so then an emergence is limited, and then we're just on the back foot right the way through. So that's just one example, but don't cut corners, do things properly and, um, and and again, have a robust plan. If you have that plan, then you know what timings you need to adhere to to get the best out of your forage and consequently animal life weight gain as a result of that. So all of those different forage uh, crop options out there for summer, uh, Paul, as you say, it's very much about what's going to fit best and where and if it's brassicas, yeah, which are the best ones? I guess there's one more recently released brassica that's, that some of our listeners may have heard about, uh, Peloton Raphno, and it's been around for maybe four or five years now. So it's been used on farm quite commonly around New Zealand uh, and parts of Australia nowadays, but there's probably a few people that still haven't heard a lot about Peloton Raphno, or perhaps if they have, they haven't actually had a go yet. Um, can you tell us, Paul, right, what sort of brassica is this Peloton product? Is it more like a leafy turnip or a forage rape? What exactly is it? So Peloton is a brassica. It's a it's a cross between a grazing radish and also another, another brassica variety known as kale. So it's predominantly grazing radish with a little bit of kale genetics in it. But that offers a whole lot because, um, and particularly in dry environments, it's a completely new species to the market, but it's grazed similarly to a um, leafy turnip. 
in the fact that we get onto it within 45 to 50 days mm-hmm. and we rotationally graze that preferably and uh, we need to keep our covers between no higher than sort of 3,000. Um, there's a couple of management tricks with it is that it does actually require a higher stocking rate compared to other other varieties of, of brassica out there. I've got a colleague of mine called Holly Phillips. She's doing her PhD on a on meat research, but she did a whole lot of research on live weight gain comparing forages with one another. And she mm-hmm. found that Peloton gained more meat or carcass weight per hectare compared to other for, um, forages such as chicory and pasture. So Peloton mm-hmm. produced 41% greater carcass weight per hectare compared to chicory and 100% more carcass weight per hectare compared to pasture. So what's that extra live weight gain and, and carcass weight production per hectare? Was that driven more by per head live weight gains or, or was it stocking rate or maybe a bit of both? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good point. So the thing about Peloton is it's a brassica mm-hmm. and being a brassica, it's not going to be any, there's no advantage over live weight gain per head. So we're looking at about 180 grams to 200 grams per head as a budgeting um, purposes in this mm-hmm. case. Compared to other brassicas, they're all the same. They're all going to be doing about that. But right. the thing about Peloton is that it has no maturity. So what that means is that it's going to continue to grow and continue to grow while the, while the animals are on the crop. So growth underfoot. Because Peloton has growth underfoot, we need to compensate that with a higher stocking rate. So that the higher stocking rate is typically starting off at 50 lambs to the hectare um, mm-hmm. and quite often that's 60 to 70 lambs to the hectare on its first grazing in the, in, in, in the spring. And when we compared or when Holly, as mentioned, compared Peloton with chicory, for example, Peloton was grazed at 50 lambs to the hectare and chicory was grazed at 35 lambs to the hectare. So we've got yeah. an advantage in stocking right there. The other thing about Peloton, as mentioned, is it does have radish genetics in it. Radish genetics are very robust in dry environments and they love the heat and they love the dry. So that's going to continue to push feed further into the season and it's going to continue to regrow. As mentioned, it doesn't have maturity, so it's going to continue to grow um, for consequent grazings heading into January, February, March and April. And that's really an advantage on farm if we've got big feed deficits in that um, January, February, March period. And again, um, when it's not going to, it's, it's going to handle the dry better than any other forage brassica on the market. Um, rape has traditionally been the drought buster of, of forage mm. brassicas. However, mm-hmm. Peloton is just another new realm of, of um, drought tolerance and it is really, really robust. So that stocking rate pushes that carcass weight on a per hectare basis. And with that, we can see carcass weight out the gate more, more carcass weight out the gate compared to other forages, which is really, really positive. Oh, that's quite a good collection of positive things about Peloton, Raphno, uh, I guess particularly for your part of uh, the world, being on the east coast of the lower North Island and you're so often summer dry. Um, and I guess one other thing too, uh, there's a really good paper that's being presented by Plant and Food Research later this year, all about better water use efficiency with Peloton and that holds on a lot better in dry conditions. So that's something to watch out for that paper being published. But, yeah, maybe it's pretty good for, for you, Paul, and, and also with, you know, the ongoing variability of weather and climate change. One other thing from an agronomic point of view, Paul, I hear that, uh, you know, that some club root tolerance is another good thing about Peloton, but seems to make it quite a gutsy plant because of that. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this club root thing? So... Club root is a disease, it's a soil-borne disease, and mm-hmm. um, my understanding is that once you have pell- uh, once you have club root within your farm and your soils, uh, it's pretty much there for life, and we cannot get rid of it. So it's a real problem, and the, the, why mm-hmm. is it a problem? It's a problem because it creates these, what well, they're called clubs, or big lesion-type um, growths on root systems of, of brassicas, and that limits the amount of water uptaken by the plant, and the plant suffers production's lost and it just it just limits the whole production per hectare of, the, of that particular crop. So mm. susceptible plants, uh, things like uh, forage rape, kale and sweet can be affected too. For anybody listening in there in, in the Southland area, certainly you'll know all about club root. But Peloton 
has been bred to have a very high tolerance to club root. And in the lab, when they tested the peloton before it came to market, they tested it between the Pukekohe strain, the Hawke's Bay strain, and the Southland strain of New Zealand, mm-hmm. and found it was very robust. They did they did actually break it in the lab in term, and what I mean by broken is to um, actually induce club root infection in the peloton root systems. Right. However, that was done with a forced sort of lab skill set, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. But in the field, we haven't observed club root infection on peloton. And it is very robust if you do have club root within your farm system or in the soils. And if you are struggling with brassicas with club root, then peloton should be considered because it is a very robust plant in that respect as well. Well, yeah, it's certainly got a whole lot of good things going for it. You you mentioned before that the feed quality is pretty good for peloton raffno and, and that it's quite similar to brassicas. In terms of grazing management, is the grazing management really important for Peloton, you know, just so that you can really realise that very good feed quality that it can produce. Yes, it is. So Peloton um, is a very a growthy plant. It, it does grow up to 200 kgs of dry matter per hectare per day. So um, that that's extreme. That's that's pretty excessive. However, you're probably looking at something around anywhere between probably 60 to 150 a day, depending on mm-hmm. the season, depending on fertility, depending on the environment, etc. Because um, it grows so fast, as mentioned before, we need to have higher stocking rates on the on the peloton raffno, um, when we can combat that um, that aggressive growth. So if we don't have the stocking rate correct for peloton, then it can outgrow the lamb, the lambs in this case, and then therefore it will start producing stem. So right. stem is um, it's a problem with lambs because lambs don't eat the lignified stem of any crop. They will, if they do, then they'll lose weight. And we don't want to lose weight on animals that, that suffers animal performance. Mm. If we can get onto Rathno or the Peloton product within 45 to 50 days after planting, then we're going to get onto it when it's nice and short. Um, yeah. It's going to be nice and palatable. And then we can get round in a rotation if we stock it correctly. And then we can um, manage the Peloton growth effectively. And therefore, every regrowth, as mentioned, will be fresh new regrowth every time. Um, and we can get some excellent results from that. In terms of um, its feed profile, I guess, and you'd have a comment on this, Charlotte, is that Peloton Raffno has similar crude proteins and similar ME values compared to other forage brassicas. It doesn't differ very much in that respect. Um, however, the only thing that possibly is different is the dry matter, product, uh, dry matter content of the plant, which is 1% or 2% below a forage rate, for example. So not yeah, a lot of difference. Right. But um, that's still something something slightly different with the Peloton product. Back to keeping it, it nice and lush and, and palatable and uh, high energy is that we need to have the stocking rate on there and we need to graze it down. So this is this is a slightly different management messaging around Peloton is that if we can graze it down to sort of 25 mil, that sounds quite short. And you may be thinking, oh my goodness, that's too short. I would never treat anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peloton Raffno can handle it. It's a very robust plant. And we just need to be confident that we can graze it down to that level. All that forage from the height down to about 25 mil or an inch is highly palatable, highly um, full of energy and does provide the goods to have adequate live weight gain with our lambs. So that's really important to, to understand that. Mm, that's really interesting. So what you're saying, it is all about grazing management. And, uh, and, and yeah, if we let it get too tall, we're going to lose that potential awesome quality will end up with woody stems at the base and oh, I agree, lambs are never going to do well from a live weight gain point of view if they're chewing away furiously on heavier stems. So Paul, I know every spring you have a, a random looking collection of road cones that kind of roll around in the, in the back of your car. Can you tell us a bit more about the Peloton road cone and how these road cones help us be a lot more likely to achieve top feed quality uh, on Peloton, just so it's just uh, perfect for grazing animals. So the road cone was a was a fantastic idea from the team, and basically we've got a road cone which is about 450 mils in height, and the road cone has a reflective strip on it, just like all road cones, and the reflective strip is about 350 to 400 mils from the ground. So we wanted to get um, farmers understanding Peloton 
and having them um, get the most out of it because we want to see good results from this product. So we came up with this road cone concept. The road cone concept is you put the place the road cone within the paddock of Peloton and mm-hmm. after it's planted, and basically when the plant starts growing, it's going to get taller and taller. And once the Peloton reaches, approaches the, um, the reflective strip, this is an indication on farm by shepherds or, or livestock managers or whatever the, the role is on farm to get to start thinking about getting some lambs off the hills and getting onto the crop and start grazing mm. it. Because um, we often underestimate how, fa- how fast the plant's growing. And yeah. if, um, if we don't have a, a visual cue in the paddock, then we can miss the boat, so to speak. If we can see the, the plant approaching that reflective strip, We've got a couple of days to organise some lambs and then start getting some lambs on that crop. If it gets above the road cone, then um, we can either compensate with an extremely high stocking rate or yeah. um, we can use other lamb, lamb or stock classes on farm to manage that. I guess the problem we're alluding to here is that if we don't get it on, onto the crop early enough, by the time mm. we get around to our last grazing cell or paddock, then mm. um, our crop can be quite tall. It can be sort of... Uh, let's just say 400 to maybe 500 mils high, which is that at that time it's producing stem. We don't really want stem. Stem is, I I call it the enemy um, when it comes (laughs) to lamb live weight gain. And um, if we can avoid all stem production, then that'd be be great. But starting on, I guess, essentially this comes down to a feed budget. And a feed budget is really Mm. key to understand the live weight of your animals going on and then understanding or measuring the yield of the crop. But not only on top of that, those are the two base points, but with Peloton, we also need to measure the growth ahead. So measuring the growth ahead is also a factor to consider. And then once we've got those factors lined up, just our sucking rate accordingly and put the correct number of, of animals on to be able to get to that last round without it getting too stemmy. Mm, gosh, that's um, that's really wise advice, Paul, and, and what a difference that's going to make to animal performance. So I guess we're, we're not just going to open the gate, let the stock in and disappear fishing for a, for a few weeks yet. <laughs> not, a, not, it, not really. I wouldn't recommend it. Well, not if you want the good quality feed and, and top animal productivity, eh? So this road cone, it's a particular type of road cone, isn't it? Like uh, you, you mentioned, 450 millimetres tall. So I'm guessing that means we can't just go and pinch a, a road cone off the road, That's right. We? This is a shorter road cone. And if you go and nick a... Um, a road cone off the road from uh, Downers or, or Higgins or something, then um, you might be um, leaving the crop go a little bit too tall. So I wouldn't recommend that. But um, certainly um, when you purchase Peloton from your local retailer, um, you actually do get a road cone with that sale and then you can uh, one or two road cones in the sale. So then um, you can place it in the paddock once it's planted and um, off you go. Fantastic. I do think that's a brilliant idea. Buy a beer for... Whoever came up with that idea of, of the Peloton road cone. So this, I guess, sticking with Peloton as a topic, is this particular new species going to replace the need for all of the other brassica species out there? Like, is, is it going to be a one-stop shop wonder that replaces the need for all the other brassicas? Or are we better to replace just a proportion uh, of our brassica crops with Peloton? Like, how does it fit into the grazing system? And the reason I'm asking this, Paul, is that I know that you've worked really hard alongside a couple of um, the, the early adopter users of, of Peloton and working well to integrate Peloton as a forage type into things like land finishing systems, but not replacing other uh, forage crop species, but actually working alongside other forage types. Yeah, so Rathno is a great product. It has a lot going for it. It has many, many benefits on farm. And I think that it's it's a product that has a has a place within the farm system, but it definitely doesn't replace it doesn't replace all all different forages. It, it's got a fit within the farm system and mm. can actually complement other brassicas. And mm. it can actually complement the farm system when it comes down to stocking rate factors and also live weight gain factors. Also, other other things on farm going on. You'll have forward store lambs or lambs which are ready to go to the works, um, versus you've got lighter lambs as well. So, if you if you're looking at peloton, that's great. But um, there's 
Things like all summer brassicas require a transition. This can take up to 14 to 21 days, and I believe you've spoken about this, Charlotte. Mm. Um, but that transition is something to consider, especially when we've got forward store lambs. And then we can use different forages to complement the farm system in that respect. For example, a chicory or a clover mm. can be used in that respect. For the more forward lambs, you mean? Like the ones that are very close to getting on the truck? Yeah, yeah. So we have um, a great, a very significant transition from coming off pasture onto legumes or coming off pasture onto onto chicory. Um, We can continue to gain weight on those lambs and get them on the truck and out of of the property. And also gaining an advantage of that early um, prime price as well. Mm. For the lighter lambs, we do have that transition um, onto brassicas. And so these might be your B or C lines or your mediums mm. or your late lambs, whatever you want to call them, whatever you class them as on farm. These these lambs are best suited to pressure because they can go on there um, and they can go on at a decent stocking rate. You can get a lot of lambs off the hills when things are starting to go dry. On, for example, Rafno, uh, as mentioned, that stocking rate thing before, and um, that, that's, that transition is about 14 days. So the transition check mm. will... You'll actually, you'll actually lose live weight within your lambs of maybe 100 to 200 grams. Would that be correct, Charlotte? Do you want to talk us through the transition? I think it's a really key point. You're the correct person to talk about that. Oh, actually, you're doing a really awesome job of explaining all about transitioning onto crops, but uh, I couldn't agree more. Quite right. It, it does take lambs, oh, you know, around that 10 to 14 days to successfully transition from a predominantly pasture-based diet onto a brassica-based feed. And the transition, it's, ta- it's taking a while for these things to come together well because there's a number of different things going on. Firstly, I guess, if the lambs have been recently weaned, they'll still be a bit unsettled, they're probably missing mum a bit. And then secondly, we suddenly introduce them to some random new feed they've never seen before. It's sort of no wonder they take a while to figure out what this new feed is and, and how to eat it. And then thirdly, of, of course, these lambs are likely to have come down off, off hills where pre-weaning probably that time of year, you know, the, the pasture quality's probably gone a bit seedy and stemmy and uh, has probably turned for the worse. And their rumens will be all set up pre-weaning, ready to digest a, a rougher type of pasture. And then post-weaning, next minute, they're down... Uh, on your cropping country, being introduced to this range of delectable forage species, such as brassicas. But delectable as they are, they're very different in feed quality to the pasture the lambs have come from. So we can see quite an abrupt change inside the rumen as the types of microbes present shift from those that are capable of digesting grass and clovers through instead until uh, a, a balance of microbes that are more effectively capable of digesting very high-quality brassicas. And this does take time, so I I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. If uh, you've got those really forward lambs, you know, perhaps they're only two to three kilos away um, from going onto the crop, then why would we spend 14 precious days allowing those forward lambs to mess around changing their rumen fermentation across from a, a grass and clover digesting one to one that's able to digest brassicas. Um, love your idea, Paul, of your B and C lines of lambs, uh, which of course are the smaller ones, because I guess by the time they transition onto a brassica and maybe don't gain that much weight for that 10 to 14 days, um, and then you know, finally post-transition they suddenly take off with some really awesome live weight gains because they're fully transitioned for the next couple of months, then I guess that relative short period of time that they're transitioning and not doing that well, we kind of dilute that short time down over a much longer period of time during which they're gaining weight really well and uh, really effectively, as you say, Paul, around that 200 or even a tiny bit more uh, live weight gain per head per day for your lambs. So as far as how to transition, well, it's each to their own, really. There's, There's no recipe to this at all. And to be fair, some people will just open their lambs up straight away onto crop and 
rather than formally transitioning them, they may just rely on the lambs uh, being clever enough to like go backwards and forwards between the crop, um, back to pasture that's around maybe the edges of the crop, or uh, maybe there's grass left on the headlands where they haven't been cropped, or gullies or adjacent hills or whatever. So a little bit of uh, smorgasbord service by those lambs going backwards and forwards. Other people uh, maybe like to manage this a little bit more um, firmly, I suppose, and actually run the lambs on and off for a number of days, uh, off-crop onto grass overnight, for example. Uh, and then other people will have to take the approach of maybe feeding out some high-quality baleage for lambs to have a pick at, just in case the lambs are craving a bit of fibre. And that's for lambs transitioning. For cattle transitioning onto summer brassica crops such as paleton, we do need to be a lot more careful with the transitioning onto those brassica crops because cattle are a lot more likely than lambs to experience some health challenges such as brassica bloat and maybe possible issues with rumen acidosis. So we usually transition cattle onto brassica crops in a, a lot more careful and measured way than we do with lambs. So it's probably a, a topic another day about transitioning cattle on. But moving on to another topic, Paul, a question for you that, that I get a, uh, often as well uh, is if we've already got cattle or lambs successfully transitioned onto a brassica of some sort during the summer, um, such as an early grazed uh, forage like paleton, do we have to retransition them back again if we move them directly like the same day uh, or than 24 hours from one type of brassica to another? There's no transition from brassica to brassica, but um, it's, yeah. best to, yeah. it's best to set up the system within your within the areas that you're going to put into a brassica, for example, it may be considered to have a brassica system set up. So we mm. can have some peloton within that within those cells or paddocks. But it's also um, beneficial to have um, another brassica, maybe that's later maturity, like a late maturity rape, or even a kale behind mm. the raffnone, just in case there's um, something that may happen within the season. It's just spreads a little bit of risk. Um, or you can use that kale in that late summer, early autumn to um, warehouse some trade lambs, for example. But changing from one brassica to another is favourable because there's no transition required. Um, and that's, that's really beneficial to continue that weight gain on those lambs and have that rising plane to get them out on the truck as soon as possible. So what you're saying is that we're not going to put all our eggs into one brassica basket, hey? Correct, yeah, exactly. Good plan. I suppose another couple of types of brassica topics that you get asked a lot about, I guess it's coming back to that planning in advance. And when we're talking planning, obviously fur prices, as we've already mentioned, have gone a bit crazy this year. And I know, Paul, I've sat through a lot of your presentations, and when you're talking about planning uh, and requirements for cropping, you've always said that DAP-based furt um, is the way to go as a starter furt. What's the story with DAP use when prices are high? Do we still stick with our traditional DAP fert or are there any other options? Yes, so there is a bit of noise and obviously fuel prices, fertiliser prices mm. are all going up. Inflation's getting a little bit out of hand. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, that's creating a few, um, a, a few frustrations and a bit of, I guess you could say negativity um, when it comes mm. to forage, um, summer forages. I think at the end of the day, if you've been using forage brassicas on farm and they're part of your farm system, I still think that on-farm feed is the cheapest form of feed. Um, yep, it's, it's granted. Um, fuel prices, fertiliser prices have gone up uh, and I just think that you're still going to have a, an efficient, cheap feed forage for your farm in the summer if you choose to go ahead with it. I think you should still go, and I don't. I just think that I don't want anybody out there to have a, a knee-jerk reaction to say, "Oh, this is too expensive," and throw the baby out with the mm, bathwater, so mm. to speak. So, I mean, you you on farm, you plant forage uh, forage forages for a reason, and that's to keep your farm system uh, mitigating against environmental risk and also market risk to some extent. So that's really important. But certainly, when it comes to DAP fertilizer, DAP contains phosphate, as we all know. And mm -hmm. phosphate is key for establishing seedlings of any crop. It could be grass and it could be, could be the forages that we're talking about today. But mm -hmm. having phosphate, 
particularly in the ground, if you can get a drill with um, phosphor, where you can put DIP in the ground, that's ideal. However, if, if you can't have, if you can't find that or don't have that, then certainly broadcasting DIP on is is also beneficial as well. It just mm-hmm. speeds up the whole establishment period of those of those forages. Um, and what we want to do is we want to beat weeds. Sure, we may we may require a weed spray um, a bit later on. But if we can get the plant up and out of the ground and have canopy closure um, within five to six weeks, that's ideal. Yep. And then we mm. can reduce our, our herbicide sprays and reduce the cost because, of course, herbicides are going up um, as, as well in terms of their pricing. But yeah, DAP at the start, nitrogen. Nitrogen is a key factor when it comes to growing yield. And brassicas love nitrogen and nitrogen is going to drive your yield. Got to be careful about nitrogen. No, we don't want to put too much on because we can run the nitrate risk and we don't want to start killing stock. So we just want to make sure that we go sensibly with that and yep. um, and, and obviously get a, the most efficient use out of our nitrogen as well. And that's applying it early, applying when there's moisture around so the soil can start breaking that nitrogen down and use it in the plant. But um, yeah, nitrogen drives yield and DAP actually assists with early growth development of um, mm. brassicas. Also, within DAP, we do recommend having a, um, a boron uh, component to that because mm-hmm. boron is very um, important for brassica development and, and to uh, mitigate against disease as well. It, it creates a stronger plant. So DAP boron burst or I think it's crop seal boron burst, those, those sorts of products are key. And, and I guess to understand that even further, you could get a soil test to um, help understand that and talk about it with your fertilizer representative to mm. get a better plan in place. Oh, yeah, we're hearing you, Paul. You've said twice now that this is not the year to cut corners or cut costs with getting any of our forage crops into the ground, but particularly summer brassicas. And I think that's a really good take home for all of us um, from this podcast, hey? No. No, that's right. I don't. I don't think mm. you should be cutting costs. If you're going to be cutting costs, then um, you're going to be disappointed, and your expectations aren't going to be met. And when your expectations aren't met, you have a bad experience, and then um, yeah, you'll be uh, not in the best place. So you've got to commit, and you've got to do it properly. Otherwise, you're, you'll basically be wasting your money. You won't be. You won't be uh, satisfied with the result. And I guess even, you know, with all the higher crop input costs being as they are, it's it's still going to be cheaper to crop something well than uh, backing up heaps of trucks and unloading a lot of other expensive feeds like, you know, baleage and palm kernel. Oh, exactly right. And um, as mentioned, forage brassicas on farm can be as low as 8 to 10 cents. I mean, this year there might be 12 cents, but 12 cents in the mm. paddock is better than trucking in palm kernel or baleage or something at 50 cents, you know. It's... Um, it's still it's still relative and it's still still economic to do so. So um, yeah, certainly a, a very strong case for homegrown feed. Sounds pretty compelling to me. I'm convinced. Hey, so look, if someone is listening in to this podcast today about summer cropping and they want to know more about forage cropping, maybe they're new to industry, they've changed roles or whatever. You know, the whole planning, getting crop in the ground. And of course, more information about the grazing management of summer forages and so forth. Who who do you talk to in the first instance? Normally, um, you've got farmers out there have a relationship with with their local retailer, mm-hmm. and they can get in touch with their local retailer. Um, they're a skilled bunch of people, but also if they want a bit more advanced knowledge or technical knowledge. They can contact the Pigeon Ruts and Seeds team, and they can talk you through some options as well because there's an array of options and an array of things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we can ask the right questions to make sure that the right products are going to be implemented within the farm system correctly, but also um, in terms of managing the crop correctly, not only from an agronomy point of view, but also mm-hmm. from a stocking rate uh, and feed budgeting point of view as well. So the retailer is certainly the first person to contact. That's certainly... Um, the likes of myself and, and the team I work alongside, you, Charlotte, uh, are very good people to talk to as well. There's, a, there's an array of contacts with the, with the egg industry in New Zealand, and I think there's a real benefit to the strength of the egg industry as well. So that's really cool. Oh, it's so cool that there's a team approach, and it's very cool that PGG Rights and Seeds, uh, as a team, sit on the shoulder, if you'd like, you know, with that extra level of technical support and advice for the retailers and directly to the farmers as needed. 
Well, I guess we we wrap up now. Paul, I I know that you've got some commitments this afternoon and you need to get out on the road and back on farm. But look, I simply can't thank you enough for taking time out of your very busy day to spend time chatting with us with all these things to do with summer forages and summer brassicas. Maybe we can twist your arm and get you back to discuss some more stuff about the grazing management of different types of summer forages closer towards the end of the year if you're a starter, because it's been really great having you here with us. But in the meantime, on behalf of myself, Charlotte Westwood, and the Room and Room podcasts and PGG Rights and Seeds, would like to thank you, the listeners who have once again tuned in to join us today. Cheers. <laughs>